All right, if you want to turn in your Bibles, Genesis 3 is where we'll spend most of the time this morning. Just a reminder, we're doing this theological anthropology as we're trying to think carefully about things like race and authority and uh, gender and sexuality. And the way that I've been wanting to approach this is to begin with our origin story. So who are we? you know, at the base of who we are, who are we? If we if we have an origin story that doesn't tell us that very well or gives us a particular view, it's going to result in a particular way of living. And so if if you have an evolutionary origin story, then I think if you're honest with your that story and with who you are, eventually you're going to say some people are better than others. I don't want us to think that way. I I want us to hear the Bible's origin story is the true story of humanity. And so I've been trying to get us just to soak in the story a little bit. I've been adding some propositions along the way and a little bit ironically, I spent a long time arguing for why we should just learn by the story. And then I gave a list of things that we should learn propositionally. I'll do that some as we go, but I was reminded this morning on the drive over of the importance of narrative and and the forming power of narrative is I was listening on the radio to an actress being interviewed about apparently a movie that's being released like, you know, recently or now I didn't catch that part of it, but it's, it's this movie where it's diving into the lives of women in, in olden days, and it's essentially promoting an LGBTQ plus sort of, you know, worldview. And the actress said something really interesting. She said, it, these movies are really important because it's going to normalize this for people because it's all about conditioning. Well, that's what stories do. They condition us to feel a certain way about something. And I argued last week that what we feel about something often takes priority over what we think about something. And that is why I think it's important for us to intentionally be conditioned by the story of the Bible, by the narrative of the Bible. I I don't want us to be a church that says it's wrong for you to watch movies or TV shows or something like that. I mean, Last weekend, my wife and I enjoyed watching one of my favorite movies from the late 90s that I just think is great. But in that movie, there are anti-biblical worldview ideas being pressed forward. And if we're not soaking in the Bible and adopting this origin story and and growing our impulses based on this narrative, we're not going to detect that. And instead, we're going to be formed by it. So we need to be discerning readers of, of... stories that we hear that are written, you know, there, there are great stories in that we just all say are great stories that really we should be picking up on some wrong ideas in, you know, there are wrong worldviews being propagated in, even in, in stuff from our favorite authors. I mean, Charles Dickens or Shakespeare, or, you know, we, we think of those guys as the safe guys. Well, there are things in there that our impulses should push back against, all right? And the same is true of modern stories and movies and and television shows. All of that to say, I think what we're doing is well worth it. And you might not automatically connect something in the narrative to the topics that we're addressing of 
race, authority, gender, sexuality. But I think as we go, you're going to gain the right impulses and you're going to start feeling the right way about this so that when we hit propositions and we see other narratives, you're going to respond, I think, as God would want us to respond. So as a reminder then, last week we walked through Genesis chapter 2, and I just tried to lay the framework for who we are as God created us. So if, if last week and the week before we talked about who we are, today we're going to talk about what's our problem. You know, we're going to answer that question, what's wrong with you guys? Well, the answer is in Genesis 3, and that forms the foundational problem for the rest of humanity, and I think every other problem that we encounter in our world today. If we don't get the problem at the seed form here, then when we're dealing with its flowering later on, we're, we're just going to, you know, be dealing with, you know, fighting consequences. We're not getting down to the root of the thing. So it's like, you know, if, you're pull, if, you, if you've got a really weedy garden and all you do is take the weed whacker and zip over the top of it with some nice propositional statements, that's good. We got to get underneath and pull the roots out and, and attack this at the heart of what's going on. As we did last week, I'm going to just read through and make some observations along the way and then invite you to think about a few things. Of course, if you have questions as we go, feel free, feel free to stop me. As a reminder, um, I'm, I'm giving a lot of reminders here because all of this stuff is together. It, it's maybe wrong to separate Genesis 1 through 11 in bits like we're doing, but no one, I think, wants to be here for 11 hours. I think that would be great. But if you remember, we have the wide-angle view of creation, cosmic God creating the, the world in the universe, and all that's in it, and he declares everything good. When, when that declaration of good comes, we need to rewire our brains and not think the ultimate perfection beyond, beyond cultivation to something better. Instead, we need to think one phase of glory that's created to be cultivated into a greater phase of glory. All right? We can wrongly think everything was perfect and beyond improvement. That's not what good means. Good means suitable, fitting, okay? And, and that's why the first time when something's declared not good, it's when something isn't fitting. And, and that's when Adam is alone. If everything were perfect, beyond improvement, then the commands to the man in the garden to work and to guard it would make zero sense. He's supposed to take something good and by God's design and power and grace, I think, make it even better. All right? So hear that. That helps us when we look at the end and the solutions we're looking for. We're looking for improvements. We're, we're looking to make something good better. We're not looking for perfection. And then it changes the way, you know, we've, we've talked about this a lot going through the end of 1 Corinthians. Heaven isn't the end goal. That's good, but it's to be improved upon. Think about that. Heaven, when you die, is good, but it's going to be improved upon. The creation was good, but it's going to be improved upon. When the new earth is, is given to us and, and we're raised to new life, we're going to have tasks and we're going to improve upon this really good thing. Otherwise, we become blobs, all right? They're, you know, we're not doing anything. We have no purpose or, or nothing. You know, we're just, there's nothing to improve upon. We need to think about the world in this way. 
So then in the narrow view, Yahweh, this covenant name of God, makes Adam, there's no field, you know, there, there are no trees, the garden hasn't been planted yet, and it hasn't been raining. Um, you know, the, it's good, but it needs to be improved upon. I, I think if we can re-envision a lot of this, this would be good for us. I was, I was reading some Augustine this week, and he's arguing voraciously that, that there were animals that were carnivores, pre-sin. And, and I think there might be something to that, actually. How did, it, how did Adam know what it would mean to die if, if he's never seen death? You know, I, I think, what, what's he guarding? What's he, what's he keeping? I think we have to expand the way we're envisioning things a little bit. And this idea that rain had not yet come probably gives us the idea that there's, there's rain in pre-flood. You know, that's not the first time. This, we have to have this idea of a, a gardener working and protecting and providing. And we don't get that if we just imagine that the man is, you know, laying in a hammock, you know, with the animals popping grapes into his mouth, you know, as he's just relaxing, all right? You don't have to look and imagine this the same way I do, but I think it's interesting to push ourselves to imagine it a little bit differently than maybe what we saw in the children's books that I saw growing up. Maybe I don't know. Some of you are older than me. Maybe they didn't have children's books with color pictures back then. I don't know how that stuff worked, but um, but it was almost this picture of you know life's vacation. Well, life's not vacation because God placed the man in the middle of the garden to work. To, to work it and then to guard it. In, in the translation we have here, to watch over it. Well, the word there, is, we need to catch this word because it will show up later, shamar, okay? That, that's this verb to guard or to protect. Uh, when I was in high school, there, there was this guy who was in the college connected to our academy who was this great wrestler, Shamar Bailey. He, he was just jacked and won all his... He was like the guy you'd want guarding you. So remember Shamar when we get to it later. Shamar Bailey, he's the guy you want protecting you, guarding you, keeping you, okay? So Adam's supposed to do this. The man's supposed to do this for the garden. He has uh, blessings, do all of these things, uh, but the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden is this, this place where the covenantal meal is shared, you know, so just as the, the elders of Israel ate in the presence of God with respect to the Sinai covenant, I'm suggesting that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man was not to eat from it without God there. It was this communal meal. So it wasn't this arbitrary test, you know, Adam, you're made morally neutral and then just don't eat of this one thing. Well, there were a ton of things Adam wasn't supposed to do. He wasn't supposed to kill Eve. He wasn't supposed to light the garden on fire. There were a lot of things that he shouldn't do. This tree then represents not, you know, fruit with the properties of knowledge of good and evil, but this place of communion with God in a covenantal meal. So when we get to chapter three, when that gets violated, it's not just this arbitrary, uh, you probably shouldn't have taken that bite. It's you're, you're committing adultery. You're breaking the covenant. Um, I was talking with Steve last week, and we were trying to imagine what would, a, what would a, an analogous situation be. Well, if, if you say your covenant marriage vows with your spouse, and then they're, they're out of town one day, and they come home, 
and you're eating a meal with your, you know, high school boyfriend or girlfriend in, in your kitchen, in the place where your, your family is supposed to be eating, your covenantal vows are broken. And, you know, meals are these things that create relationship and community. That's why we do the Lord's Supper is something that's big. But it would be awful. And that's what we're about to read here, okay? So it ends, the, you know, chapter two, the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. And then chapter three, verse one, which is fully connected to this, uh, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, we already talked about the serpent. I won't go into this, but if you want to talk about it again, I'd love to. There, there are a lot of interesting things here. But the serpent says to the woman, why the woman? I think not because she's this frail individual, but she's not the one who received the word directly from the covenant God of what she should or shouldn't do. So if you're a cunning attacker, and there are only two humans, and you're trying to get them to break covenant, and only one of them has actually heard the covenant stipulations directly. Which one are you going to go after? Well, the one who hasn't heard it. So, but it, all of these yous, you know, y- did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? All of these are plural yous, okay? So read y'all in your text. Adam's there. And then that's emphasized down the road when, when Eve, you know, the woman, she's not Eve yet, okay? But when the woman gives to the man and he eats, no discussion. He's heard it all. He's, he's right along with her. But he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, this is a, a misquoting from God. It's kind of plain ignorant. Sometimes we do this when we're trying to get somebody to think about something and convince them of something else, right? We'll be like, ah, you know, let's, let's give this idea. It's off, but we're going to make them think about it. They can't just say yes or no. They're, they're drawn into this conversation. The woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden... God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die, okay? Where, why is the serpent talking? Where did he get the power of speech? I don't know. I tend to think that, um, well, again, this is, this is my guess. I tend to think that this serpent is, um, he's a bad dude, not because snakes are bad, but because he's like the mouthpiece of, of the evil one, okay? We, we have to read into that a little bit. But the fact that no other animals are pictured as talking would indicate that this is probably an odd thing to have happen, all right? The garden's great, but it's not Narnia. And so when, the, when, a, when an animal starts talking, there's, there's something behind that. But the woman keeps talking with him. Um, hold, hold on to that for one second. She says, you must not, God said you must not eat or touch it, or you will die. I, I've always heard the woman's adding to the word of God, and that's her first error here. I don't know about that, because when we read the, the rest of the Pentateuch, you get this mountain of the Lord, where if, if people even touched it, they were going to be put to death. And so I, I think she's just communicating in the strongest terms, this is off limits for us. And in the same way that when the trumpet blew and people could go out and touch the mountain, I think that's what's going on with the tree here. 
Moses is writing this to people who are descendants of those who couldn't touch the mountain, but then, then could. And I think this is just using that language that would help them understand what's going on here. And it's, you know, I think, I think the woman said this, and I think Moses is emphasizing this because of who he's talking to. This is a, a sacred thing. It's a covenantal reality. It has to deal with God's very presence. But then this, in verse 4, the serpent responds, No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, or, or more literally, as God, or as gods. It's hard to say. You know, Elohim is this plural, and you kind of don't really know sometimes if it's talking about, you know, deities or the God, you know, the, the God that's been referenced earlier. I tend to think that in verse five, in fact, God referencing, you know, creator God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like Elohim. These, these uh, you know, call them what you want, angelic beings, you know, deities, whatever. I, I think that's what he's saying is, I know something that God's hiding from you. You're going to be like me and I'm like them, you know? So I think that's what's going on there. He's trying to say, you're going to be better than you were. You're going to know good and evil. And again, remember this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not properties of knowing good and evil because they knew good and evil. Don't eat of the tree. Don't violate the covenant. It's, in, it's instead taking on this position of moral authority, okay? So I'm the one who's going to determine right and wrong, good and evil. I'm the one who declares this because I know this truly and, and I've got the authority to articulate to others what should be and what should not be, okay? The woman then said, or saw, okay? So we've talked about eyes here. Um, and then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. This phrase starts out very similar to all the phrases after God created something and he looked at it and he saw that it was good. It was fitting. It was right. Well, now she's looking at this and already I think her perception's been altered. Okay? So we use the language of seeing for physical eyes, but then we also use it for perception, right? We understand something. And I think throughout Genesis, we've got a lot of these double, double word meaning. That's what good literature does, okay? Re if we're reading good books, we're going to say there are multiple things going on here. So the, the term polyvalent or multivalent will sometimes be used. There are multiple things being communicated here. Well, she's looking at this and she sees that it's good. It's delightful to look at and it's desirable for obtaining wisdom. So not anymore is it desirable for communing before God in the presence of our covenant Lord, but it's desirable for obtaining wisdom, this authority to declare what's right and wrong. And now we know better than Yahweh because the serpent told us, okay? And, and remember throughout, it's interesting that we've had this shift from chapter two to chapter three, where it's Yahweh Elohim to just Elohim. Now it's just God. The serpent's almost writing the covenant nature of God out of this thing and making him a bad guy, not a good covenant Lord, okay? So I think that's what's going on here. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
okay, this, this is interesting, and we could get off track and say that the serpent was right. They grew in knowledge of good and evil. Uh, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think they became less than what they were before instead of becoming more than what they were before. So the serpent says, you eat, you're going to attain a higher status. You'll be like the Elohim, God or gods. Well, they ate, and now they're embarrassed and shameful about who they are. Okay, so they can know this nakedness, like I said last week, is both physical, but then also relational. There's this vulnerability that's felt that's shameful. We have to hide from each other. That's the immediate consequences of of their actions. There's a death of their relationship with one another. There's a death of the freedom that they once felt. They thought they were free to take any, and that freedom now has made them captives to close, okay? It's, it's made them less than who, the, who they were. They, they no longer enjoy this freedom that they had before. And so immediately, the serpent's words prove false. He's a liar from the beginning, okay? Let me pause there. Any, any comments or questions before I invite you to think about something in our culture based on this reality? Yeah, well, that's a good question, and, and we'll get into that a little bit more, but it is a bit of a riddle, isn't it? If, if Adam was told to guard the garden, and a creature comes into the garden saying, don't listen to the God, your covenant Lord who gave you this garden, and, and you're told to guard the garden, the first thing you should do is fight that snake. Get that thing out of there, you know, crush it, kill it you know, push back on it. Say, no, we're not, we're not listening to you. Our God spoke something to us. And that's a God who called everything into existence through his word. Your word shouldn't matter. Okay. But they don't. So you're, you're sensing there's a problem here. Okay. I, or Tim. I was just going to say, and then building on that, then you, you can see how, because they didn't do that right away, it opened the door for deception. Yeah, yeah. With Eve, because then she, because she didn't immediately put put it to death and do what God had commanded her, then she was open to to this conditioning that the serpent was was doing. Yeah. In order to to cause her to look at the fruit differently. Exactly. God had had intended for her to look at the fruit. Yeah, that's a good point, and that that begins the first of three things I want to invite you to think about based on our text up to this point. The first is that the serpent spoke to Eve and created a narrative, spun this story that God's not the good guy that he says he is. And instead, let me tell you a different story of what will happen. Let me give you a different eschatology, okay? A different end of, of what's going to happen. And that, so she looked at the fruit, at the tree. She thought about this in she didn't think hard enough, okay? The, later on, the, the New Testament authors tell us she was deceived. But Adam, they don't talk about in that same way. The man, they don't. And so you've got to remember th- that our feelings often override our thinkings, if that makes sense. We can't really separate our, our brain and our hearts. That's just a way of talking. And it's good to talk that way. But that's what's going on. Their, their hearts are being drawn towards something. They have an affection that is exploding the, the true word of God, and in doing so, it explodes their affections for him. They, they aren't 
loving him, this covenant faithfulness and steadfast love is gone. Okay, so point, you know, first thing I want you to think about is what stories are you listening to? And particularly, what vision of the good life are you allowing to come into your heart? When I'm referencing television shows and books and movies, the biggest thing I think they do in, in drawing our affections away is not portraying, you know, some sort of evil act or something by itself, but instead painting a picture of the good life and saying you can participate in these evil acts on the way and you're still going to get the good life, whatever that might be. And, and we get painted a picture of the good life of wealth and pleasure and satisfaction and, you know, laying in the hammock, you know, on, on the beach. Do whatever you want and, and crush people on your way to get there. Uh, this is the vision of the good life. So I'd invite you to think about that and evaluate what visions of the good life and what eschatologies you are accepting uncritically and, and without hearing God's word speak louder and more effectively than, than the word of these alternative visions of the good life. The second thing that I want you to consider is that at the end of chapter two, the man and the woman are naked and unashamed, and we've understood this to be the first marriage, really, in terms of a covenantal context. And, and we should learn from this that covenantal context, covenantal relationships breed appropriate intimacy. And so here we have the example of a covenant of marriage where full intimacy and vulnerability can be shared without shame or fear. But then when the covenant relationship with God is broken, it unavoidably has impacts on the covenant relationships between humanity, such that the covenantal trust there is broken as well. And so there's this shamefulness in vulnerability. And that's the world we're in now. What's our problem? Well, all of humanity who have been intended to deal with each other in covenant faithfulness and steadfast love are inclined not to do that. But yet, weirdly, very weirdly, we're also inclined to pursue short-term fullness of vulnerability with anybody that we want, only to ditch them along, along the way, okay? So what we're getting into here is thinking a little bit about the sexual mores of our society that says you can have complete vulnerability with whoever you want, regardless of their gender or your marital status. You can enjoy full vulnerability with no consequences. Well, we learn here that the fullness of vulnerability is enjoyed within a covenantal relationship of marriage. Okay, I, I don't want to go into this too much because I think it's there, but only subtly there. But, but we see this, our breaking of covenants, and, and then there's shame in the vulnerability, okay? The, the final thing that I want us to understand related to this or to think about is that we are actually created for vulnerability. And I think that's why there's this budding of ideological heads of vulnerability, commitment, you know, we want vulnerability, but not commitment, but we kind of actually want commitment too, you know, but we're broken, you know, we're messed up. Our wires are all messed up in, in our programming right now, but that's, God created us 
to enjoy deep, intimate relationships with individuals appropriately, but in this covenantal sense of faithfulness and steadfast love. And we long for that. And so we need to pursue that in the right way. And we need to offer that to others. When there are individuals who are caught up in all kinds of sin that the world, the, the world is saying this offers vulnerability and protection in commitment for everyone else to you, but you don't have to say, you know, you can, you can do what you want. That's what people are hearing. And then they get caught up in all of these things that seem to provide the vulnerability and the intimacy that we were created to share with other people. And what we need to do is find that intimacy and commitment together as we form relationships as Christ's people with one another. And then appropriately as we find those, you know, especially in marriage, but then realizing that because we're created for relationships and intimacy and, and vulnerability, even your marriage alone is not going to offer all that you need in, in your vulnerability and intimacy, relationship, friendship stuff. So what I'm trying to say here, don't, don't hear me. I'm, I'm saying be married have your spouse, love your spouse, know your spouse, but then also realize your spouse can't be everything to you, okay? And so it's good for you to have friends, all right? I think when marriages start to say, all of my relationship in, in intimacy is going to be found in this one person, we're putting way too much weight on them, and eventually we make them captive to us, and we're not actually loving them, okay? We see this in marriages that are broken all the time, and, and I think what's going on here is the man and the woman were intended to be fruitful and multiply, but creating relationships, and they were intended to relate to God. And when those things suffer, the marriage is going to suffer. Again, I think this is subtly here in, in seed form. And as we read the rest of the Bible, this starts to come to fruition in people's marriages that we see in, in another places. But we are made to be vulnerable and have intimate relationships with each other, but we're expected to do that covenantally such that we don't elicit that from someone and then cut them off, okay? That, that happens all the time. I, we should all be reading Lord of the Rings, okay? I think I can say that authoritatively, not really from the Bible, but I think just experientially. And since like, you know, well, never mind. It was, I thought it would be funny, but it wouldn't. Um, the... W- the, the ring that Frodo wears makes him invisible. And if you read the books, he's most tempted to do that when he's in danger. And most of the times he's in danger, he has friends around and he's willing to put on that ring and cut off the covenantal faithfulness of this intimacy in this friendship and allow them to take the, the poison daggers for him. And that doesn't work because he gets the poison dagger, all right, which he needed to get. But we're willing to engage in, in let people be vulnerable and then cut them off. And we shouldn't do that. We're not made that way. And it's problematic when that happens. This is at the root of sort of our, our self-protectiveness, our unwillingness to guard others and to give for others, especially others who are different than us. I think that's where this is exasperated a little bit. That's, that's a problem with us. We're covenant breakers at heart. So Hosea 6, 6, and 7, like Adam or like humankind, who knows what 
how that should be translated because it's the same word. But like Adam, they're covenant breakers. But I want steadfast love. Well, we have to just say that's who we are. And what that should do for us is make us quick to repent when we violated faithfulness and steadfast love to somebody. Okay, so when I am told I spoke harshly with somebody, I should be, it should be easy for me to say, you're probably right, because I know from my origin story and from what I see in the rest of the Bible, that's, that, that's what I'm inclined to do. And so it's actually probably even way worse than that. Okay, you don't know the half of it. You just saw a glimmer of the problem there. When, when we sense that we're looking at people who are, look different than us, particularly based on skin color or economic status or gender, when we look at them and we're disinclined to show faithfulness and love to them, we, we need to be quick to say, that's me. I, I'm a cov- I just, I want this, but I don't want to, I don't want to uphold the other end of it. And I need to repent over this. Okay. All right. Comments or questions before we get to the, the consequences, which further um, illustrates what's wrong with us. Yeah, we, we have a church covenant for a reason. Read that thing. It's, a, it's on our website. And, and that's cultivating what should be, um, particularly in the household of God. Okay, let's talk about sin's consequences here. I'm going to go fairly quickly because I'd like us to get through Cain and Abel here as well. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, so reverting back to covenantal name here, walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, which is the most futile thing possible that you could do. But they've, they've hidden themselves from each other, and now they're hiding themselves from the Lord God. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And I think this is the same language of God calling the, the light day in, in the darkness night. When God calls something, something big is about to happen. There's a reality that's about to be shaped here. Verse 10, and the man said, I heard you in the garden. Um, or, you know, this, this verb of hearing is often translated as obey. So maybe there's this kind of double meaning, I obeyed you in the garden. No, you didn't. You know, you're, you're hiding. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So he doesn't even answer the question, where are you? He starts to rationalize why he's not where he should be and why, why he's hiding away. Verse 11, then the Lord asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So again, a roundabout way of getting to answer the question in blaming God's creation. And as we read later in the text of the Bible, if you are affronting one of God's image bearers, you're essentially affronting God himself. So to say this, this woman that you gave me, you know, she's, she's the problem here. So, so I ate. So the Lord God then turns his attention and asks the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
Now here, I don't know how much we should trust Eve's language. I mentioned that later Old Testament or New Testament authors talk about her being deceived. I don't know if they're just, you know, using her words or, or what. I, I tend to think that Eve is maybe playing a little bit more of the victim here than she actually was. But she says, I was deceived and I ate. So these confessions coming after the excuses. So then the Lord God said to the serpent, no questions to him, okay? He's, he's a big part of the problem here. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock. So before he was clever more than any of the livestock or cunning more than any of the livestock, now he's cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. You know, not literally eating dust as a meal, but you're, you're going to be this, well, two things here. Dust, what was man made from? Dust, in dust that was outside of the garden. The serpent, you're going to be in this dust outside of the garden. You know, you try to, to deceive man, well, you're going to be under man the rest of your life. You're going to be, you're going to be eating dust outside of the garden, out of the presence of God the rest of the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Adam and Eve are hearing this. They know the punishment for eating is death. Well, they haven't died yet. And now they start to hear that there will be hostility between the serpent and the woman ongoing, it seems, and then between your offspring and her offspring. So it seems that this woman is not going to die at the end of these proclamations, but instead will bring life into the world. And in that through this life, the serpent is going to have to be on his guard because there's, a, there's going to be an offspring of the woman who's actually going to shamar, to guard, to be on the lookout for, for this serpent. Now, I think it's important to note here, the offspring of the serpent, I don't think is literal, okay? Um, we, we can read too literalistically. I don't think he's saying baby snakes need to watch out because baby humans are going to, you know, strike at them. You know, I don't think that's what's going on. I think we've got to read this for what it is. Um, primarily, you know, serpent in all of your powers, you be on the lookout because I'm going to do something with this woman's offspring with, you know, that, that's going to be fatal. He'll strike your head. You know, this is fatal language. You're striking his heel is probably going to be bad, but, but maybe not fatal. Okay. So there's, there's a glimmer of hope for the man and the woman who expected to die at the end of these pronunciations. He said to the woman, so turning his attention, so it was, he's questioned the man, then the woman, then the serpent, you know, now we're back to woman and then we'll get to man. To the woman, I'll intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Okay, so this offspring is going to come. That's going to be a, a hope against the serpent and his offspring. Think of the serpent's offspring, like Matthew 23, you brood of vipers or first John, the, like Cain, who was of the evil one who was a murderer from the beginning. So you can be a seed of the serpent in a non-literal way, but very real, in a very real way, be a seed of the serpent. But I'll, you'll bear children with painful effort. I think this includes not just the, you know, 
pushing a baby out, but I think conception is going to be extremely difficult. And that's why throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, there are women who have trouble having children. And in generally, unless they're trying to conceive children sinfully, is a seed of the serpent. Seed of the serpent children come easy. Think of Lot and his daughters. Seed of the woman children are challenging. Think of Rebecca and Rachel and, and Sarah. Okay? So you'll conceive with painful effort. But that painful effort will be a death-mitigating reality. You'll bring life into the world in the kind of life that has the hope of, of striking the one who, who violate, led you to violate the covenant. But then your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. This is complicated. I think it's going to be, you know, woman who was made as an azare, the one who would deliver from death, this helper for your husband. Instead of desiring to help him, you're going to, you're going to desire against him. You know, you're going to desire not to, not to be the one who helps him, but the one who crushes him. You're, you're going to have conflict, okay? But then he will rule over you. Think sometimes by manipulation, sometimes by just brute force, he's going to rule over you. We've got to pause here. I thought I would go farther, but that's okay. Um, let me end with one reflection for you. Have you wondered what would have happened if Eve and the man, the, the woman and the man, told the, the serpent when he said, God doesn't know what's good for you. In fact, he's hiding something from you. If, if they said, we are tasked with guarding this garden, we're going to kick you out. We're going to fight against you. What would have happened? Well, I think manip manipulative snakes become striking serpents when you, when you antagonize them. Okay, If you start poking a snake, they're, they're going to attack you. I think the serpent would, would try to kill the man and the woman. Okay? The, there's been a proclamation, you eat of this and you die. I think the serpent's got it in his mind. If they don't eat of this, they're going to die by me. Okay? They should have fought him, I think. They should have cast him out of the garden. I think they should have fought to the point of death. If that would have happened, let me give you some alternative ideas of what might have happened next. Revelation 2.7, let anyone who has ears to hear that's a big part of this. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the garden of God. Revelation 2.10. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Revelation 2, 17. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Then the final one I'll read here. Um, Only hold on to what you have until I come. Only hold on till the evening when the pre in, the, in the cool of the day when the presence of the Lord will come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, 
just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Okay, so I, I think we need to read Genesis and Revelation and hear the, the possible outcomes and have a better vision of the good life when, when we hear the voice of the serpent in, in the narratives of our day. Okay, I'll pray here briefly. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it to change us and give us the right impulses, impulses that would worship you and remain in faithfulness to you and, and to show steadfast love to you and to each other. In Christ we pray, amen. All right, thank you.